Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, thank you, uh, band, Kyler, worship team, very, very much for that. That, that is incredible. It is good uh, to be here with you this morning. Um, the few gathered, uh, as well as those of you at home, it's a, it really is a great day. God is doing some incredible things uh, in our midst, and uh, he continues to provide us all the grace we need. Uh, in fact, his grace is very lavished upon us. Uh, many of you are aware of the journey that has taken place recently here at River Bluff when Pastor Terry and his family felt God's call to Greenville. And God had, uh, through his sovereign grace, uh, provided uh, leadership to kind of step right in and bringing Kyler up into the role of uh, director of all of our worship ministries and creative arts. And part of what that did was that created a, another vacant space on our staff. And uh, we began looking. Uh, Kyler really did uh, do the, the, the majority of that work. He... Uh, found, I don't know how else to say it, uh, by the grace of God, a great gift, uh, and she has already become that to our, our family and to our staff, and uh, her name is Gabby Zapata, and I want you to meet Gabby this morning. Gabby, if you would come on down and have a seat right there. Gabby and I are going to have a conversation, yeah? Yeah, normally people would stand and cheer and, uh, yeah, um, Gabby and I are going to have a conversation today, and you get to kind of eavesdrop in on that conversation a little bit, um, we, we came into uh, contact with Gabby in an interesting way. Um, I was actually supposed to go talk with a pastor um, at Journey Church, and then I discovered he was going to be on sabbatical till like August the 16th or something, and we didn't want to wait that long, so um, Kyler knew somebody uh, who was uh, serving on the worship team over there and thought he would just contact them to see if there was somebody in their leadership pipeline who might fit into this, this role now that, that we had available. And so he calls a former student of his, uh, whose name was Gabby, and began asking her, Gabby, do you know anybody who might fit this role here uh, at our church? And Gabby responded with, what about me? <laughs> what about me? And so um, we, we really have, beget, we began that journey in conversation uh, that, that started that day. And um, I am grateful to say that, as I love to say, God opened up a hole of grace uh, and this time her name is Gabby Zapata. Gabby, tell us just a little bit about, about you, who you are. So I am now a senior at CSU. Go Bucks! last year. Um, yeah. <laughs> my dad is a pastor slash church planter, um, and he's been a pastor my whole life. So grew up in church, um, and my parents did a wonderful job in raising me and instructing me in God's path and teaching me what it looks like to love God and to serve other people. And so... Um, I joined the worship team at my dad's church when I was 11, probably because I was a pastor's daughter. <laughs> Got some grace there. Um, I started with playing the keys and singing, and my dad plays the guitar and he sings as well. So it's always just me, me, and, me and him leading worship and um, getting to grow up with that. So it's been about 10 years since I've been leading worship. Um, and yeah, so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here and to serve River Bluff and all of you guys. So. Now, I, I know you know this. I don't know that everybody else does, but I love your daddy. 
Um, <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a great man of God. He's become a good friend. He serves on our board over at Low Country Cares. Um, he's passionate about helping those who struggle. And I love his heart about that. I love his heart to see churches planted. And so um, when, when I heard from Kyler that this was a possibility, man, uh, if, if this old dude could have done handsprings and cartwheels, I would have. Um, we're, just, we're really so excited for, for you to be on, on our team now. Now, um, you're going to be doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work in, for our worship team to support them. Um, you'll be on stage some from time to time. And uh, the other thing that you're going to do, this is one of your you know, prominent roles, is you're going to be giving leadership to our student ministry worship teams, uh, the band and, and, and the praise singers for our student ministry worship. And uh, they've already had a chance to meet you on a Zoom meeting, and I, I understand that went great. I, I, I see a couple of them in the house. They're going, yay! Uh, <laughs> and uh, they're excited about that, and, and we're excited, excited about that. Yeah. And you're excited I'm about it. I'm very excited, that, yes. Okay, well, yes. That, 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 that'll be helpful then. That, that'll be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for your life and your ministry here and uh, just ask for God's blessing over you. Normally, I would come and lay hands on you. We're just not doing that at the moment. And our elders would come and we'd pray over you. But uh, we're going to do it a little differently today. And so those of you who are gathered uh, in your homes, if you would join me in praying for, for Gabby. Let's pray. Father God, we come giving thanks. Uh, I want to thank you, first of all, for, again, your grace being always sufficient and it always feels like for us it's more than what we even ask for uh, God we, we we find that again in your grace of bringing Gabby to join us and so father we, we come giving thanks for for her for her testimony for her love for for Jesus for how contagious that is for uh, God the way she's already stepped into the lives of our staff into our hearts and and God, we're so grateful. And I know that's going to take place, uh, God, as, as our whole family gets to meet her. Uh, so, God, I, I'm praying for her now. I'm praying, God, that your hand would be upon her, that your grace would be sufficient for every challenge she faces, both still as a student at CSU, um, God, as, a, as an influencer on that campus, uh, and, and then God serving here. Uh, encouraging our students and helping develop a pipeline of leadership for, for development of future worship leaders that can serve here but then can go out in, in Jesus' name and proclaim your beauty uh, in, in worship, God. I, I pray that for Gabby. I pray, God, that you would strengthen her. I pray, God, that you would lift her up. I pray, Father, that she would uh, know you in new and fresh ways every day as she sits in front of your word. I pray your blessings on her, God. I pray that the peace of Christ would fill her heart and mind even more abundantly than it has. And I do pray for her, her family. I pray, pray for her dad, the ministry that he has at, at Grace Church in Charleston. I pray, God, for uh, the, the seminary that he leads. I just pray for your blessings on the Zapata family. And we give you thanks, God, that you have united our hearts to serve in your kingdom together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, wave bye to everybody, Gabby. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless you. Well, we are uh, continuing our journey uh, in the book of Job. And uh, so if you have your Bible close to you, and I hope that you do, um, you may want to get that out. We're going to, today we're going to be primarily uh, in Job chapter 19. 
is where we're going to find ourselves mostly anchored um, uh, for today. And uh, I want to uh, just help us think together a little bit about leading into this today. Yesterday, right here um, in this same space, we walked with the Stasic family through a service celebrating their, their, the life of their mom and, and grandma and, and even a, a great-grandmother, Mrs. Barbara Stasic. And I, I just want to encourage you, please keep that family uh, in your prayers uh, as this journey of grief continues for them. Also, for Kathy Roberts and uh, Michelle Whitman and their family, just continue to pray for them and the loss of, of Kathy's dad, Michelle's grandfather. Um, just, just pray for that. Now, one of the things that has uh, made a journey through sorrow like that even more difficult is obviously the pandemic we're in. Now, I've done a couple of services, uh, memorial services, funerals during this pandemic, um, and yes, it's made it more difficult to get through, but no matter, no matter what, facing death is always difficult. It, it just is. Uh, facing the death of a loved one or just the, the, the idea, the, the concept of death. But here's what we know. We can know from God's word that death is part of this life. In Hebrews chapter 9, God's word tells us everyone must die. And after that, be judged by God. So everyone, God's word says that death is a part of this life. Now, the truth is you can take all the vitamins you want to take. You can pump iron and run and get your face stretched from here to tomorrow. But it's, it's not going to change things. It, 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 it won't. It just won't. There's an author uh, by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. And one of the things that he said was he said, I, I have one foot in heaven. He, and he recommends this for all believers. One foot in heaven and, and one foot on the earth. And then he goes on to say, but my foot on the earth always feels like it's on a banana peel. Now the truth is. All of us sometimes feel like life is slipping away. What, what do you do? What do you look for? Who, who do you look to when you feel that, that slipping in, in this life? Well, our journey through the book of Job, we saw early on uh, that Job was a man who lost pretty much everything. He lost his, his prosperity. He lost his property. He lost his status. He even loses all of his children. And then he loses his health. The greatest fears that any, any person faces in this life happened to Job. He, he actually lived those out. And then last week we saw how three friends came, thinking that they were going to kind of come around him in his sorrow and encourage him. You, you remember those friends? They were great at first. They, they acknowledged his suffering. They, they sat with Job in his grief. But then we saw last week how Man, eventually things went, took a horrible turn. And these friends actually became adversaries and they start to, to just pontificate about why Job was suffering so. And their conclusion was because Job must actually be an evil man. And Job tries to kind of answer them back, which just to be honest for a moment with you, it's not always the best course of action in the heat of a kind of verbal exchange like that. See, it turns out that none of them really understood what was going on. None of them were right about the cause and effect of, of Job's suffering. So Job's response to them really wasn't helpful to, to his, his own cause. It didn't set the record straight. 
Let me kind of take a detour for just a second. Let me say this. Um, because of God's call on my life uh, to ministry and pastoring, there are times because there are times you just have to, to do some leading. And I, and I love the call that God has in my life. I love being, I love being your pastor. But there are times when it, it, it will cause some people, they'll disagree with something I do, and they'll, the, the criticism might come. It doesn't happen very often. Please don't be, be afraid for me or anything like that, because it doesn't happen very often. But when it, when it comes, I've learned now to try to seek that person out to hear them out. I want to I go and listen to them. And rarely these days anymore do I try to defend myself. Because here's what, here's what I've learned. Those who don't know you, they don't want an explanation. And those who do know you don't need an explanation because they know you. You, know, you remember that song, Haters Gonna Hate? It's just there's some reality there. And the other part of this is my mentor taught me that I could either set out to defend myself or I could let the God of angel armies defend me. But I can't have it both ways. Guess who I've chosen recently? Yeah. See, the book of Job would have been so much shorter if Job had practiced that. Probably only six or seven chapters long. But Job actually becomes a great model for what defending yourself can get you. You know, he, he, he had this faith that started bouncing around when he started trying to defend himself. He goes from frustration to faith back to frustration. He goes from, from complaining to, to confidence back to complaining. He's just kind of kind of bounced around, you know. Uh, it, it, there's this just real-life story of this guy going through pain. And Job it had moments early in this journey of suffering where he sheltered in the Lord. We saw him do that in chapter 1 and 2. And, you know, he didn't charge God with any, any wrong. Instead, right after the aftermath of all the calamity, he worshiped God. He, he praised God. He rebuked his wife who tried to get him to curse God. But then we saw last week after sheltering for a long time, he kind of steps out from under the shelter. And he goes in and, and out. And in and out. He put his left hand in. He takes his, no, we won't do that. Um, it, it just goes on through the whole book. He's kind of in and out. But, but here in, in, in chapter 19, something powerful happens. And I believe we, we come upon what is the high point in the whole book of Job. Because Job discovers a perfect shelter for every storm in life. And, and what's so incredible to me about this is he finds it when he's actually at the lowest point point emotionally, his lowest point physically, probably even spiritually, Job suddenly has the greatest revelation, and he makes the the most profound spiritual proclamation, I think, in, in the whole book of Job. And it's right in his point of greatest suffering that he has this incredible insight. Now, I, I've seen that happen in the lives of other people, people suffering profoundly, and they begin listening to the Lord in new ways. And the Lord begins teaching them. And I try to listen to what they're learning in those moments. It can be so profound and so humbling. See, when people who suffer can talk about the goodness and about the grace and mercy and greatness of God in the middle of their suffering, it displays the beauty of Jesus like, like nothing else. If, if you're unfamiliar with a lady by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. 
I just would so strongly encourage you to meet her through her writings. She, she blogs, she's written books, but in 1967, for those of you who don't know her, at the age of 17, she was involved in a tragic diving accident. She became a quadriplegic. Now, in, in recent years, she's had multiple battles with cancer, yet when she is processing all this publicly, out, out loud for everybody to see, she still speaks of God's goodness and God's grace and the greatness of God sheltering her in all these storms of life. She is a woman who has truly found the perfect shelter for all of life's storms. If you've never been introduced to her writings, go out there and search for her. It, it, it'll, it'll be an encouragement to you. Now, we, we haven't read this yet. You can go back and look at it later if you want to in chapter 14. But in chapter 14, Job asks an incredible question. It's going to come up on a slide here in a minute. And it's simply this in Job 14, 14. Job asks this question, if a man dies, shall he live again? He doesn't answer it immediately. But he does when we get to chapter 19. And he, he, he answers this question with what seems to me like supernatural clarity. I, I believe with divine inspiration. I believe God has revealed something to, to Job that could only be revealed by God. He could not have understood this for himself. And we'll see that in verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them to Job chapter 19, we're going to start reading in, actually start reading in verse 1. Um, then we're going to skip down in a minute. But Job chapter 19 verse 1 says this. How long will you torment me? Well, excuse me. Let me go back up to verse 1. It says, then Job answered and said. Job is actually answering Bildad. Bildad has given this long speech and explanation in the, in the preceding chapters. And he's accused Job. And, and Job's answering him. And he's saying this to Bildad. How long will you torment me? And break me in pieces with words. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And if it's even if it be true that I have, have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make me a disgrace, an argument against me, know that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. In other words, God is, God's the one. He's trapped me in my suffering. This was Job's understanding uh, up until that point. But now jump down to verse 23. Look what, look what Job has moved to now. And he says this, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and, and, and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Let me pray for us again. Father God, we come to you. Thankful for your word. We pray that you would now allow it to illuminate our heart and minds and lead us to the truth about who you are and your plans for us and your hope for us. Guide us now as we seek you together. In Christ's name, amen. Now what I, I read here is that Job has found and now proclaims a perfect shelter. 
And now as we're going to unpack this, there's a few things that I, I, I want you to see and notice about this perfect shelter that Job has found. And we're going to do it by, by actually writing a sentence. So by the end of our, our time together, we will have one complete sentence that I think hopefully will succinctly help you think about this great, perfect redeemer that Job has encountered. The first part of this sentence that I want to give you goes like this. The perfect shelter is a person. This perfect shelter that Job has found is a person. Job identifies him as somebody that he's called a, a redeemer. It's a title. And, but he uses his personal pronoun. He says he. Look at verse 25 again. For I know that my redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Obviously, Job is speaking about a person. And so get this, Job is no longer looking inward to himself. He's not trying to figure out how he can pull himself up by his bootstraps from, from all of his tragedy. Job hadn't gone out and bought, you know, the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In fact, at this point in his life, Job completely understands he can't trust in himself. He's lost everything. He has this disease that literally is taking his life. His life is wasting away. He's no longer looking to family or to friends. You know, his wife told him to curse God. His friends effectively, if you kind of really look at it, basically get to the place where they say, Job, you're just basically a sociopath. You're just an evil guy and don't even want, want to admit it. That's why God is judging you with this disease. You're just a wretched person and you've hidden it up until now. And so Job's hope, this sudden trust, this newly discovered shelter, Job describes as a person. And he calls this person a redeemer. And the Hebrew word that is translated here that we get the word redeemer from is the Hebrew word ga'al. Ga'al. And it's actually uh, also gets translated in other places in the Bible as kinsman redeemer. I want to unpack this word ga'al for a minute because it's very important throughout all of all the teachings of Scripture. A ga'al is basically a relative, a person in your family who can pay a price, a required price to give somebody their freedom. And what that means is if somebody, if a person in the Old Testament time, you know, went into debt, so much debt that they eventually the only way to pay it off was to uh, give themselves over to become a slave to the person that they owe to. A kinsman redeemer, a ga'al, this relative could step in. They could pay the price that had been set for this person and, and free them and restore them. Or if it had been land that had been part of that family's heritage, inheritance, they could buy back that land. Probably the greatest Old Testament example of this is in the book of Ruth. Many of you know that. It's a, a guy by the name of Boaz. It's an incredible, a great love story. Uh, Boaz restored the inheritance of his relative named Elimelech, and he married Elimelech's wife, Ruth. But as beautiful a love story as that is, it's actually a great story about a Gaal, a kinsman redeemer. And Job realizes, you know, I need somebody like that in my life. I need, I need a Gaal. I've lost everything. And so he looks to this perfect shelter of a Gaal. He says, even after I die, this person could restore my life, my, my name. Now, here's what I love about, about chapter 19. All throughout the book, Job has these, this series of oh-no moments. You know, Job, you just lost all your servants. Oh, no. 
Job, you just lost, you know, your, your house was crushed. Oh, no, Job, all, all your, your livestock, your, your, basically how you make your living is gone. Uh, oh, no, Job, all of your children are dead. A big oh, no. Job, you're, you now have a disease that may take your life. Oh, no. But here in chapter 19, Job doesn't have another oh, no moment. What Job has is an, is an aha moment. He has this incredible moment where he begins to see something very clearly, even, even through the pain. Job gets this revelation of truth, I believe, from God. And it begins to help him transcend everything that he, he's going through. And I, I believe with my whole heart this is a prophetic word that the Spirit of God revealed this truth to Job that he proclaims here in, in chapter 19. I, I don't even think Job fully understood all that he said. Like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't know everything uh, and understand all the details of what God would tell them to speak. I don't think Job does here. It's like suddenly a curtain gets pulled back, a, a light fills the room. I like what one commentator said. One commentator said that this is Job's Neil Armstrong moment because he takes one small step of faith for a man, but a giant leap of faith for mankind. I, I love that. Now, by the way, this, this title, Redeemer, is one of the great titles for God all throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus uh, chapter 6, God, speaking of himself, describes himself this way. He says, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. God speaks of himself as, as this one who redeems. The prophet Isaiah saw God as a redeemer. In Isaiah, that great, great chapter 43, he says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. God, God, is, God is a redeemer. God is, if you would, he is a kinsman redeemer. God is the ultimate Gaal. Now, I personally believe that the greatest example in all of Scripture of this Hebrew idea of Gaal is found in no one other than our Lord Jesus. He is the perfect picture of a redeemer because he came to redeem all of mankind. He paid the price of our sin, your sin, my sin, everyone's sin. And so Paul understood this. Paul captured by this Old Testament kinsman redeemer idea and Romans 3 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's verse 23. Many of us know that. But verse 24 goes on to say, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our redemption is in Jesus Christ. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says this, In him we have redemption. So Job suddenly understands, I've got I've to look to a redeemer. Now, there are three qualifications again. Let me go over them real quickly of a kinsman redeemer in Old Testament. I'll just run through them and then I'll unpack them. First of all, had to be a relative, a blood relative. Secondly, had to be able, have the capacity to redeem. And third, had to be, be willing. So first, you had to be this blood relative to redeem somebody. In order to, to restore them, in order to have the right of the kinsman redeemer, you have to be in family lineage. You have to be a blood relative. Friends, this is the reason for the incarnation. 
This is, this is why God became a man. Because he, he joined the bloodline of the human race. He stepped out of the glory of heaven into a stable in Bethlehem so that he could be related to you. Related to me through, through blood. Secondly, the, the, the kinsman redeemer had to have capacity uh, to be able to pay the price. You know, it's one thing to come up and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a blood relative. I'd like to redeem this person's land. I'd like to buy it back into their, into their family. In order to do that, you'd have to cough up the big bucks. You'd have to write a check that, that wouldn't bounce. You, you had to be good for it. And Jesus came and he paid the price. What did he pay with? What, what, was, what was his currency? The apostle Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So he had to be related. He had to be uh, able to, to pay. And third, he had to be willing. And to me, this is the most beautiful part uh, uh, about Jesus. Jesus wasn't forced to come pay the price. He, he, didn't, he didn't have to even be coerced. He willingly gave himself up for you and for me. The apostle John, who, was, who, who thought of himself, he, he, he talked about himself, wrote about himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He, he couldn't get over how much love Jesus had. The, the, the apostle John wrote these words that Jesus said. Jesus said, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He says, my father has given me this authority. See, Jesus meets all the qualifications of a kinsman redeemer. He's related by blood. He's able. And most importantly, he's willing. See, the shelter we need, the, the perfect shelter that we need is not a stimulus package. It's not a, a, another check from, from, from Congress. It, it's, not a, it's, not even, it's not even a vaccine uh, against this coronavirus. The perfect shelter is a person. It's a person. You know, you could, have, you could have the wisdom of Solomon. You know, you could, you could have the talent of the greatest musician, rock star on the planet. You, you could have the health of the greatest, most powerful athlete. You could have the, the patience of Job that we're studying. You, you could have uh, the kind of compassionate heart of someone like maybe a, a Mother Teresa. You could have all those qualities, but you would still need the blood of Jesus to cover your sin. You still need a redeemer. See, many people confuse Christianity. Christianity is not a set of creeds. Christianity is a person. It's not an institution or a ritual or a religion. It's a person. And so for Job... The perfect shelter was a person. And Job knew that this title for this person would be a redeemer. And so Job, uh, notice what he said about the redeemer. He says he's alive. In verse 25 he says, For I know that my redeemer lives. Whoever Job is speaking of in that moment in time was alive. Now remember, Job was living during the patriarchal period. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, somewhere in there most scholars believe. And whoever Job was thinking about, he says, was, was alive. 
and, and was well at that time. Some people interpret this, this statement from Job as, as simply being Job saying, well, there's got to be somebody out there. There's got to be somebody who could fit the bill uh, to do this. Who, you know, somebody who uh, understands me, who gets me, who gets my plight. You know, some, somebody like that. But when I read the context of this, this is, this is not just wishful thinking on Job's part. He's not saying, well, I hope somebody's out there who could, could help me. This, this is much more than hope so. Job is identifying somebody called a redeemer who is at that time alive. And he goes on to say that that same person will be alive at the end of time. Doesn't that sound more New Testament me than Old Testament? Is New Testament me a word? Anyway, it, it sounds more like the New Testament. It says he's alive. You may remember Jesus in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 said this. He said, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. You know, after, after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples, they came to the tomb where he'd been buried that, that place they saw him, him buried, they saw him tortured to death on a cross. He was put in this tomb. They, they came to the tomb, and in Luke chapter 24, they have this encounter with an angel. And an angel, the angel asked them this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why'd you, if you're going to go look for Jesus, why would you come back to, to the tomb? In Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul, looking back on that, wrote these words. He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now, I don't know why, you might think. Why, why, well, let me ask, why do you think Job mentioned that his redeemer lived? Why, why this idea of a living redeemer? Well, I think the short answer would probably be because a dead redeemer can't help anybody. You know, only a living redeemer can, could help somebody. It's like a doctor. How many of you are going to, for your next doctor visit, going to go visit a dead doctor? You know, I, I don't think anybody is. A, a dead doctor can't help you. A dead farmer can't plant a field. A dead builder can't, can't build anything. A dead redeemer cannot redeem. It's got to be a living redeemer, somebody who could purchase something back, somebody who could set slaves free, somebody who could uh, rebuild your inheritance. It has to be somebody who is alive, could be active. Now, you may say, Joe, why are you focusing on that? What's the, what's the big deal? Why do we need to pay attention here? Well, here's why in our day I think this is so important, because so many people are so willing to to entrust the eternal state of their lives to a dead guy's teaching. It, it blows my mind when I think about it, you know. How, you know, there, there's some people who have died that they were, they were great teachers. They, they said some, you know, good things, but death beat them, you know. Sure, they said some nice things. I, I, some of you in here, I've talked to you. you. From time to time, you come up with something nice to say. I've, I've heard some of you. You know, you, you, you do that. You say nice things too. But Jesus, Jesus is different. You know, there are a lot of people who, who follow the Buddha or, or Muhammad. Muhammad died in 632 A.D. 
and in, in, in that day, they put him in a tomb. And in our day, millions of people every year go to that tomb. They visit that tomb of Mohammed. And you know what they do? They mourn. They weep over his death. Every Easter, millions of Christians think about the tomb of Jesus. I've, I've been to where some say it was. It's empty. There's not a body in there. We celebrate. This is what our faith is all about. The resurrection. The conquering of death by the Son of God who is a living redeemer. I love a conversation that I read about this atheist professor. He was having it with a college freshman uh, in his class. She had, on, on, on campus, when she first arrived, she pretty much went public that she was a follower of Jesus. And one day in his class, it seemed like he was trying to belittle her a little bit. The professor said, well, so many people have, have claimed to be the Messiah. How can you be sure which one told the truth? Who, who, who are you going to believe? And the young lady looked at him kind of inquisitive, almost thinking the professor you should know the answer to that. It's so, so easy. And she, she responded. She said, I'm going to believe the guy that got up from the dead. That's the one I'm going to believe. You know, a, a lot of people make a lot of claims. But Jesus is the only one who got up from the grave. So Job's perfect shelter is first of all a person. Here's the second part of that sentence. He's a person who can be personally known. He's a person who can be personally, listen again to what Job says about his living redeemer. For I know that my redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Notice this he is not just generic. Job's not saying there's somebody out there somewhere. He's not, he, he's not saying, you know, hey, let me tell you about my mom's redeemer. Job is saying this is my redeemer. Do, do you know people who kind of talk about God you know, kind of secondhand. They, they use kind of silly phrases like, well, you know, I was talking with the man upstairs. Um, th- sometimes what that lets me know is they don't know him intimately. See, here's, here's the big question here. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your Redeemer? These are important questions that must be asked and answered. You know, it, it's, like, it, it's like my wife, Kathy. Before October 15th, 1983, I could have said, you know, there's a, there's a good-looking gal over there. I, I, I could have said that. You know, she's, she's a good-looking girl. Hey, do you, you know that, that good-looking girl over there? But after October 15th, 1983, I say, that good-looking girl, that's my wife. That's my girl. It, it, it changed. She, she became part of my life in this way. And Job is saying, I know that my personal, my redeemer lives. Do you have that my in your relationship with Jesus? Are you trying to live out some secondhand experience? Paul, when he was writing to his young protege, Timothy, 
uh, he saw the faith that Timothy had. And he writes to Timothy, he said, I'm convinced of your sincere faith. He said, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. He's not saying, well, you're just kind of living on your grandma's religious coattails. He's saying, Timothy, you have a personal faith. I see it in you. That makes a huge difference. It's kind of like what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 7. He says, Nicodemus, you, you must be born again. You can't live on the coattails of anyone else. It's not, hey, do you come from like good stock? You know, is your family, you know, you got a faith background back there? You have to have your own personal connection, your own personal contract of commitment with Jesus. Nobody can do it for you. There's not, not like a family rate plan or anything like that. You have to come. You have to come one at a time. It has to be personal. See, Job's perfect shelter is personal. It's specific. It's not generic. That's why he says he's my redeemer. And I hope you notice how confident Job is, is in this statement. There's, there's not hesitation. I want you to notice that, that twice Job's, Job's power of confidence here is, is expressed. Verse 25 and 26, Job says, For I know, this is an emphatic, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand on the earth. That, that's another emphatic phrase. Verse 26, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall. Another emphatic phrase. Some translations go as far as to say, I know I shall. See God. That's what Job is saying. In the original Hebrew language, those are emphatic phrases. And we need to pay attention to them because there was a bunch Job didn't know. And he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from the things he doesn't know. Job did not know that his suffering was happening because there was a conversation between God and Satan. He didn't know that. It happened, but he didn't know that. He didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. So there was a bunch that Job didn't know. But now, suddenly he knows something. And he's very confident in what he's knowing. And he's moved from hoping to knowing. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to never turn loose of what you know in order to grab hold of something that you don't know. There are going to be a lot of things you don't There's a lot of things I don't know. But I am not going to let go of what I know to try to figure out what I don't know. Now, I'm not going to quit searching, I'm not going to quit praying, and neither should you. But continue to hold fast to the things that you know. Don't trade them in for what you don't know. And if you're a Christian, the Bible says you can know. You can have a complete assurance that when you die, your next stop is heaven. God's word promises that. Again, the Apostle John, who just wrote incredibly about his intimate relationship with Jesus, in 1 John 5.13 wrote, I think, the, the, the clearest passage of Scripture that speaks to this. John writes this. He says, I write these things. And I think John was thinking about everything he had written. The, the gospel, maybe the book of Revelation by this time, maybe, maybe this part of his, this letter, this epistle. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? then this is for you, that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, Joe, when you die, do you, do you think you're going to go to heaven? My answer is going to be no. 
I don't think I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. I know that I know that I know I'm going to heaven. And one of the things that tears at my heart is when I hear, and I have heard this, that there are pastors who do not stand firm on this. That instead of holding fast on this issue of eternal security that you can know it, I I heard of one who counseled one of their members and, and told them, well, we won't really know until we die. That seems a little bit late to me. I don't, I don't know about you, but that seems kind of late. I mean, if I'm picking on doctors today. If you go to a doctor and the doctor said to you, well, you may have cancer or, or you may not. And you say, well, doc, how, how can I know? If your doctor said to you, well, if you die from it, then we'll know. How many of you are going back to that doctor? Anybody at home? No. Why? Because the diagnosis would not be helpful. It would be a little bit too late. See, God wants you to know you can have assurance that you don't have to be beat up by fear over this. So he might say, Joe, how how can you know? How do you know you're you're saved? I I was there when it happened. I, I, I remember the season of my life. I remember what I was facing, what I was going through, what I was struggling with. I remember being unburdened. I remember being relieved. Lightning didn't strike. There wasn't no hallelujah chorus or anything like that. But my life changed starting that day. And it slowly changed over time. And people around me began to see that. Now, friends, That's not arrogance. It's confidence. It's confidence in believing that what God said is true. See, that's not arrogance. In fact, believing what God said is true is humility. It's bowing. It's bowing before his word. It's bowing, trusting that in the revelation of God. And so you can have confidence. You can know I read a blog about this, and so I searched to find the photograph. It's going to come up on your screen. I don't know if you can read it at home, but there's this, there's this picture of a, of a headstone. And this is what it says if you can't read it. It says, pause here, stranger, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, prepare for death and follow me. And the blogger that I was reading wrote that their response to this headstone would be, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. Sounds like good advice to me. You know which way you're going? Do do, do, do you know? Do you confidently know which way you're going? Because God's word says you can have confident assurance. Job said, I know my redeemer lives And then he goes on to say, and after my skin has been destroyed in my flesh, I shall see God. Third part of her sentence. Job's perfect shelter is a person who can be personally known and is perpetually effective. See, the perfect shelter is perpetual. It will never end. It's not going to stop being effective after some period of time. It doesn't come, you know, with this warranty that expires after 20 years. Job speaks of his own eventual death, but also eternal life. 
He does this in verses 26 and 27. Listen to these words. He says this. And after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh. Now, that's, that's a strange contradiction. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I I shall see God. Uh, Verse 27, he continues, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Not another, it's not going to be somebody else's eyes, it's going to be me. See, Job is suddenly looking beyond the grave now. He knows he's going to die, that this body he has, it, it is decaying around him, he sees it. But simultaneously he realizes now, I'm going to live forever. He, he says, you know, my outside, my body's decaying. He sees this disease attacking it. He sees the wounds on his skin. He knows his body is failing him. He's seen it happen to others. It's kind of like the, the philosophical cab driver who, who said this to his ride one day. He said, life is like a, a cab ride. The meter keeps going whether or not you're heading somewhere or you're just sitting still. And it's true in life. You know, we're all, we're all headed somewhere. And the meter is ticking. And Job, Job knew this. And now he's come to understand that his perfect shelter, you know, is, is, is going to outlast and outlive him. But he also suddenly knew that in this same body, somehow he was going to see God. How is that possible? Well, there's only one explanation. Job came to understand that he was going to have a bodily resurrection. See, when Job says, I know my body's going to decay, but my flesh is going to see God, the only way that's possible is if there is a bodily resurrection. Now, friends, please grab hold of this. Job is living millennia before the resurrection of Jesus. Millennia before Jesus lived and walked the earth. Most likely in the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and yet he is making this confident statement in, in a bodily resurrection. Now, you may not wonder, you know, why, why is that so important? Because we need to understand that this idea of the resurrection did not just show up in the New Testament. It's been imprinted in God's revelation to humanity throughout millennia. It goes way, way back to the early days of the Old Testament. See, a perfect shelter is perpetually effective. Those of you who were watching that are followers of Christ, if Job, if he was able to have this kind of conviction centuries before Jesus, millennia before Jesus, how much more so should we live with a strong conviction about our own personal resurrection? Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know that Jesus proved those words by walking out of the tomb. After being tortured to death, on the night before, on, on the night before it happened, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room in, in John 14, verse 19, he says, Because I live, you shall live also. And friends, this is one of the big questions for the day, for those of you who follow Jesus. Do you cling to this with conviction? Is it so rooted in your faith in God that you personally believe that your Redeemer lives, that you have a living Redeemer? I want to finish our sentence this morning this way. The perfect shelter, Job understood this, is a person who can be personally known 
and perpetually effective. But what, what Job didn't know that you and I can know is that his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Now, whether you're like Job before the, his calamity struck, may, maybe life has just been really peachy keen, hunky-dory, okie-dokie for you through this pandemic. Or maybe, maybe you're broken. Maybe you're, you're struggling. Maybe you're more like Job in his disease-ridden state. The truth is, no matter what end of the spectrum you're on, this life is just a warm-up. It's a dress rehearsal. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that you're going to be ready for the real show because it's coming. You're going to see God. Lord God, we come in this moment. We come, God, facing this question of a redeemer. Your word proves that it is Jesus. The Old Testament prophesied of his coming. The New Testament speaks of that fulfillment. The apostles verify it as eyewitnesses in their writings. Jesus is the ultimate perfect redeemer. And maybe today for the very first time, you've come to understand that you need, you need that from Jesus. That right now you are, if you were to walk out of this life into the next, you would not be justified before God. You would be dead in your sins, in your trespasses, as the Bible says. In this moment right now, you can turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to be my redeemer. It has to be personal. You have to be willing to no longer trust yourself or your ways in this life, but put your trust in Jesus' life, his purposes, his plans, his way. And the Bible says if you will call on him, on the name of Jesus, with that heart of conviction, you'll be saved. And you'll start your eternal experience with Jesus now. You'll be born again. You'll experience new birth. Christ follower, right now maybe what you need to recommit to is just driving a stake in the ground and saying, I am not going to any longer let Satan play that game in my head of whether I'm in or out, whether I'm safe or fearful. Put your trust in the word of God. Let it be the foundation for your life so that you can experience the joy of your salvation in the here and now, even in your suffering. You can know the God who has eternally secured a place and space for you with him in his eternal kingdom. But you got to trust him. If you have, whether you've done it for the first time in this moment or whether you're recommitting yourself fully to trust God's promises, what we need to do is regularly praise his name and so what I want to challenge you to do as we worship him now is if you've been redeemed, say so. In your home, stand. Praise his name. Say so. Jesus, we want to honor you now. We want to worship you as our redeemer. We praise your name. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.